Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing church, for Justin, for the team, for the outstanding job that they're doing. And we thank you, God, for the beginning of great, great things in this next generation, starting here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so we're continuing the series on the Gospel of Luke. And today, I want to talk about why believers are the most privileged people in the world. Why believers are the most privileged people in the world. And the text we're going to share from is in Luke chapter 10, verse 21 and 24. And we'll get into the backdrop of this in a moment. But this particular text is Jesus, it said, uh, Luke says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. And so we see this uh, amazing text. And as a backdrop for this, you know, he's talking about hiding things from the wise and learned, reveal them to, to small children. And so we need to understand what is he talking about related to children? What is it about children that he wants us to emulate? In Matthew chapter 18, he says that we have to be converted and be like children in order to come into the kingdom of heaven. During the Palm Sunday event, Jesus told the Pharisees and Sadducees that were upset because they heard children worshiping him and crying out, Hosanna in the temple, Jesus said, yes, have you never read of the, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise, quoting one of the Psalms. And the point is that children have absolute trust in their parents to protect them from harm, to provide them all their needs, and to have their best interests in mind. They know that their parents would do anything for them and for their well-being. And so the main objective I have today is to encourage us to have faith like small children, to believe God for great things and to appreciate the gifts that he's given us in this New Testament age. As I'm sharing, there are four key questions to ask yourself. Number one, am I limiting God by rationalizing everything to the point of excluding the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit? Number two, why has the Father handed all things over to the Son? Number three, how does the Son reveal the Father? Number four, what, did, what is it that Christians experience now that the Old Testament saints never saw or experienced? Getting back to the text, the backdrop to this narrative last week, I'm sure you probably were taught this, we see the sending out of the 70, and we see that in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 1. And he sent the 70 out to preach, to heal, to proclaim the kingdom of God. There is no coincidences in numbers. Numbers 
in scripture, usually metaphorically or allegorically, connect to a greater narrative in scripture. And in my estimation, and I think some scholars would agree with that, when he sent the 70, that wasn't an accident. That was representing the fact that Jesus would claim back all the nations of the world post-resurrection that he scattered during the Tower of Babel. If you notice the chart of nations in Genesis 10, there were 70 nations. Genesis 11, because they tried to build a tower higher than you know, reaching God and being autonomous from God, uh, God scattered the nations and allowed false gods, or at that point they weren't false gods, to have some kind of uh, uh, interaction with them. But he basically was focused now on Israel. Genesis 12, the very next chapter, we see God choosing Abraham to start a nation. And later on, we see that he chose Israel as his portion. And he allowed the nations to go their own way, the Gentile nations. But when we see Jesus sending out the 70, that was a sign that he was now claiming back all the nations of the world. Isn't that great? He was bringing back those who were lost, those who were outside of the covenant, as we see in Ephesians 2. The day of Pentecost, we also see people representing all of these nations coming to faith in Christ. We see that in Acts chapter 2. Again, no accident, the Holy Spirit reclaimed back the nations that the blood of Jesus Christ legally was able to ascertain and exercise authority over Satan, who once ruled over them. And then we see, finally, in Luke 10, verse 17 to 19, where he said, Lo, I've given you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. Uh, basically, that was a sign that the principalities and powers over the nations who were ruled by Satan were now broken, and that's why the 70 were able to cast demons out. So everything connects to a greater meta-narrative. How many understand what I'm saying here? And so these demons submitting to the 70 was a sign that all nations of the world were back under the authority of Yahweh, like they were pre-Tower of Babel. Now let's go back to the text. Jesus said, and uh, we're going to verse, uh, I think it's 22. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, majority text learned, and revealed them to small or little children. So we see here the author, who is Luke, he made sure that he highlighted the fact that Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit for his spiritual and emotional strength as a human. Again, in that same hour, he, meaning Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, in the Holy Spirit. And so he was highlighting that. Why? He was juxtaposing that with those identified as what? The wise and the learned the ones who used their mind too much or rationalized things or rationalized to the point of excluding God in the supernatural. Who are the wise and learned in this particular context? Most likely, he's referring to the group called the Pharisees and Sadducees. They, they were the religious leaders, 70 of them, made up the Sanhedrin that ruled over Israel. And they were the ones who opposed Christ the most. And so Pharisees, 
were those who were legalistic. They believed in all of the scriptures and they believed uh, in everything we would believe, basically. And they never excluded the supernatural in terms of the narrative, but they opposed Christ because they were legalists. And today we have a corollary with that in Christianity with what we would call Christian fundamentalism. People that are legalistic, they agree with everything, but they don't necessarily have the flexibility, the heart of God, the compassion uh, to allow the spirit to move in them. We also have another category of people. Uh, again, there were Sadducees, and the Sadducees were akin to the modern liberal scholars today because they denied the resurrection, they denied the exi existence of the spiritual world, they didn't believe in angels or anything like that. So they would be akin to present-day progressive scholars who deny the supernatural elements of the faith, including the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. They think it's just a spiritual thing, mystical, but it didn't really happen historically. And so there, there are many, many denominations that are like this, that have been poisoned by the Sadducees, Sadducees or the, the leaven of the Sadducees, where they denied the supernatural element of the gospel. And so many, if not most of all, the mainline Protestant denominations have gone down this road of anti-supernaturalism and progressivism. And here's the difference between this church, me and my son, and those who really believe the word, and liberal scholars. Liberal scholars interpret the world or I would say this, they interpret scripture through the lens of culture. Whereas we would interpret culture through the lens of the Bible. Big, big difference. And so we even see those in the body of Christ who are Christians, who are born again, who are quote unquote cessationists. These are those who are saved. They have a supernatural belief in the resurrection of Christ. They have a witness in the spirit. They believe in almost everything we do, but they deny that the gifts and power of God are still active today after the final canon of scripture. Um, and then we see those even in the historic Pentecostal charismatic denominations practice this a form of historical cessationism, meaning the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Even though they say they believe in the power of God, they don't practice it at all in their churches. So that's a form of what we would call functional cessationism, which is no different from the cessationism of some rigid reformed camps and, and, and even fundamentalists. So those who overly rely upon their own intellect and reason today are the same or in the same category of, of those that Jesus was trying to correct here. Um, and when we overly uh, depend upon our intellect and we believe that everything should go through the grid of what we would call empiricism, meaning it should be proven by our five senses, what we see, what we feel, what we touch, what we hear, when we're like that, we've been captivated by the modernistic view of what's called the Enlightenment, which started in the 17th century, uh, which I'm not going to get into the history of it, but basically 
truth had to be verified through laboratories or through science. And even if we're Christians, we could still be beholden to that modernistic view because that's the culture we were raised in. And of course, now we have postmodernism. And again, I don't want to get into all this. <laughs> we, during the days of Jesus, it was the so-called pre-modern era, the world of gods and spirits. Uh, during the Enlightenment, it went to the modern era where there was no supernatural explanation for the universe. Then the modern era seemed to die somewhere in the 1970s uh, with certain events and of course 100 million people being killed in the 20th century didn't help. The first century that was atheistic, the first century that was dominated not by religion but by science, wound up having 100 million in World War I and II and other wars. More than everybody in human history has ever been killed, so modernism died. And then in the 1950s, we have the era of postmodernism. Michael Foucault and Derrida and Richard Rorty and others introduced something where there was no meta narrative, only minor narratives based on the subjective interpretation of each person. So there's no absolute truth. Here we are today, but again, let's move on. Spurgeon, let me end with a quote Spurgeon. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. And that from a nice Baptist boy preacher. <laughs> Let's go back to the text. Jesus said, the Father has handed all things over to the Son. Now this is important for us to understand one little sentence basically encapsulates the whole Bible, but let me do my best to summarize this. He said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, verse 22. The New Testament illustrates the fact that the Father has entrusted everything to Jesus. In John 5, Jesus said, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment, some would say all judgment, all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Wow. Jehovah Witnesses don't like that one. <laughs> Philippians 2, Paul says, God has bestowed upon Jesus a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those things in heaven and earth and every tongue should confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all power, not some, not most, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Heaven represents in scripture, in the Hebrew mindset, immaterial, the, the immaterial spiritual worlds, not talking about the atmosphere. And earth represents everything in the material world, not just the earth, the planet earth, it represents the whole cosmos. All power has been given to me. Again, all things have been handed over to, over to me by the Father, Jesus said. Um, furthermore, Jesus is the key that unlocks the meaning of all scripture. This is the Father's will. In Luke chapter 24, 
Jesus basically, I'm summarizing this, he said in verse 25 to 27, believe all that the prophets have spoken. And this is the summary of what the prophets have spoken. Later on he said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Father, his will, that Jesus is the key, the hermeneutic, if you want to get technical and theological, the interpretive key that unlocks the meaning of all scripture. Joseph Campbell once wrote a book called The Man with a Thousand Faces. Basically, the narrative had to do it in every mythology. There is a hero that arises, that goes on an adventure, that winds up having great distress, maybe sometimes even dies, but eventually overcomes the challenge. He triumphs, and then he returns back to his homeland as a hero. Well, I propose to you that Jesus is the man with quadrillion faces. Every story is fulfilled. Every human story, every uh, element in your life, because we're all image bearers of Christ, even those who don't know the Lord, everybody's story ultimately points to Christ, who is the consummation of human history. But we can't understand the scriptures if we don't have an understanding of who Christ is. Let's continue with the text. Then Jesus said, no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Wow. So what he's saying here is the Father is the one who initially reveals the Son to humans. How many people here has ever received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Let me see your hands. Okay. I'm actually in a good church. Wow. Everyone raised their hand. Um, I thought maybe one or two. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So basically what this is saying is that your salvation was initiated not by you, but by the Father. That's deep. You know, we have a sign on the door, whosoever will. And we walk through that door and we look back and it says you were chosen. Can't understand it. At one point, the disciples didn't know who Jesus was until the Father revealed who he was to Peter. We see that in Matthew 16, when Peter said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, Simon, son of Barjona, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So all conversion experiences initially emanate from the Father revealing who the Son is. Pentecostal Arminian theologians, that would be Methodists as well, holiness, um, some Lutherans, uh, charismatics, are usually those who are called Arminian in their understanding of who initiates salvation. They call this process, this pre-conversion process of God dealing with a human heart, prevenient grace. The reform camp calls this pre-conversion process being born again. Born again to them is not an instant uh, event that takes place, but it is a process of God turning a heart of stone into human clay so that they'll be open to finally receive Christ. Jesus said in John 6, 37 to 46, just going through this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Wow. No one can come to me except the Father draws him. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Wow, it's powerful stuff. What about the Son revealing the Father? In this passage, Jesus said, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so they work in tandem. No one can understand who the Son is. No one could be saved except through the Father. But no one can understand who the Father is except through the Son. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, no one has ever seen God at any time but the Son who is in the bosom or the side or emanates out of the Father has made him known. John 1.18, John 17.6. Jesus said, I've manifested your name. He's talking about God the Father. He's manifested the name. He projects the name of Yahweh. He projects him in his life, in his essence, in his doings, in his healings, in his words, in his mind, in everything. It tells us in Hebrews that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We see throughout the Old Testament, Jesus was the visible Yahweh on earth who revealed the invisible Yahweh in heaven. We don't know this in the Old Testament as much, but in the New, we look back at the Old and we say, wow, that was Jesus who appeared to Abram in Genesis 18 before Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. Jesus came to him with two angels. Wow, that was Jesus who was called the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 13 who appeared to Manoah and, and Samson's uh, uh, parents to announce his birth. Wow, that was Jesus that Joshua prostrated before uh, when the captain of the army of the Lord's hosts revealed himself. That was a Christophany or a, an appearance of the Yahweh, the visible Yahweh on earth manifesting the will of the Yahweh in heaven. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 19, it says, the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from heaven, from the Lord out of heaven. So you see one Lord, one Yahweh, raining down fire and brimstone and judging the city of Sodom and Gomorrah out of the Lord from heaven. As a matter of fact, up until about the second century, even Jews had a theology of, of a, uh, a, Yahweh, a visible and invisible Yahweh, but because of Christianity, they got rid of teaching that. Okay, there's a whole book on that. Yeah. Hook out of my mouth. All right, let's get back to the text. Then turning to the disciples... I mean, all this is being manifest. And it's even blowing Jesus' mind. Because can you imagine waiting all these years, generations? And of course, it tells us in Revelation 13 that, that Jesus was crucified. The lamb was slain before the world began. God wasn't surprised with the sin of Adam and Eve. In the councils of heaven there was already a mandate that God the Son would come and become a human and die for the sins of humanity that was not yet born. So before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Before that, the Son of Man was destined to die. Wow. 
So Jesus is waiting all this time. And he turns around to his disciples. And he says, many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see. You could point to yourself. Many prophets, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ezekiel, all of them have desired to see what you see and what we take for granted in Christianity. They longed for these days. He said they desired to see what you see and didn't see it and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. John 8, Jesus said about Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. In Moses' day, Deuteronomy 18, God said to Moses, I will raise up for them, meaning the people of God, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak all that I command him, and whoever doesn't receive his words will be cut off from among the people. David awaited the Messiah in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 and 31. It says that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Isaiah waited for the manifestation of the Messiah. It says, behold, a young woman, uh, in some translations, but it's really virgin, that's the correct translation, behold, a woman shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah was waiting for the Messiah that, for that day to come. He says, for unto you a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He is the consummation of all human history, not only of a particular prophecy, but of human governments, of the better narrative of your life, and of all of history, creation, and reality. Who is this Jesus? Again, Isaiah, looking to the future, said he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought him peace was upon him, brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been or we will be healed. 1 Peter 2.24, looking back, said we were healed. Looking back at what Isaiah said. So what the saints have now is greater than what the Old Testament prophets and kings have ever seen. What you have is greater than anything. All these heroes of the Old Testament you've read about, they've never seen what you've seen, experienced what you've experienced. Even those who have been taken into the counsel of God, like in Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, Micaiah and 1 Kings uh, 21, they have never been able to walk with God like you because you have a new covenant that's built upon better promises to the point in which Jesus said to Matthew 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. So he's saying up to that point, John was greater than David, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of these guys. But watch this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist was greater than all 
of the saints, prophets and kings of the Old Testament, and yet the least of you, you might have just got saved yesterday, you're greater than John, greater than Isaiah, greater than Ezekiel. Why? Because the promises are so much better. All the promises in Christ are yes and amen. Through his blood we come into the most holy place, whereas in the Old Testament they could only come to the most holy place once a year, and that on the Day of Atonement only through one person, the high priest. Now all of you can function as a high priest and come into the most holy place. This is powerful. The promises of the new covenant give us everything, not some things, not most things, but everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious, very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The ultimate blessing in this covenant is to walk in unity, in union with Christ. That, that's what this is talking about. The great theologians of the East call this theosis. Others call it uh, divinization, and they call it other things which we won't get into. As I end this, how do we apply this? I sent a list of 10 small group questions to Winnie this week that you could use for this message, but just a few things. Do you appreciate all that God has revealed to you in Christ? You have to ponder this. Are you committed to learning his word so you can walk in those promises? And will you humble yourself as a small child so you could believe God to do great things. This is the essence of this message in the word of the Lord. God bless you.